program today begins on more of a solemn note in light of the events of this past Thursday. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. On Thursday, many of us started our morning with the news of the events that were unfolding in the country of Afghanistan. After such a long period of time of no lives lost in that military theater, terrorist activity took the lives of at least 13 of our servicemen from the United States. Only time will tell if there are actually more, plus how many Afghan citizens also lost their life. These past almost 20 years of our United States involvement in the Middle East and in Afghanistan has come with a very dear price. And I'm going to share as we begin this program and we think about those, I think about those servicemen, mostly United States Marines, who were thinking that next week by Tuesday, I'm out of here, I'm on my way home to see my family, to be again with my friends, maybe my spouse, whatever the case may be. They're coming home, but they're coming home in a casket. Their life was lost. I had a hard time sleeping last night. I would wake up thinking about the events of Thursday, what we had seen, and and all the commentary, the press conferences, the look of despair on the faces of people that It seemed like they were caught off guard, but anybody with a reasonable mindset should have fully understood the risk. I've been hesitant to, to share what I'm about to share with you. You may agree, you may disagree, but I hope you'll give what I have to say some thought. I agree with many people that wonder what was the mission in Afghanistan? What was the mission in Iraq? If it was nation building, obviously after 20 years, it's obvious we failed. And many had warned early on that our presence and our might and our power and our money is not going to change the attitudes and the mindset of the leadership in those nations. Afghanistan will once again sink back into what it has been for many, many decades. Unfortunately and sadly, as we learned, a corrupt government and a home for many different terrorist organizations that are a plague on the world. If our mission was to to put a stop to Al-Qaeda after the events of 2001 on September 11th, perhaps that mission was fulfilled. But continuing a presence and $2 trillion later and American lives 
We're leaving behind a country where we built infrastructure, a country where we modernized their airports, and now terrorists have access to billions of dollars of American vehicles, weaponry, and technology. And I have to ask the question, how how was this allowed to happen? What kind of incompetence in our own government could bring us to this point? And I thought about it. And a lot of these problems are truly the real systemic problems of our nation. Corruption. Pride. Social promotion. You've been around long enough. You are now in charge of something. It's called the Peter Principle. You rise to your maximum of inefficiency. The Pentagon has proven to be a dismal failure. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have been clueless. It's obvious. This is not a political statement, but I want you to to kind of hear this out. A story is told, and it's not that long ago, where President Trump was visiting, and this will kind of give you an idea of some of these issues we're facing today that were predicted in 1961 by Dwight Eisenhower when he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. And I want you to think about this. President Trump had the opportunity, while president, of visiting one of the newest aircraft carriers coming onto the fleet, the USS Gerald Ford. And he went there, and of course, the normal procedure is all the top brass of the Navy want to, you know, get the photo ops, but the president decided he wanted to see You know, the people that ran the nuts and bolts of the operation. Those, you know, behind the scenes. That's kind of breaking protocol, but he did it. And one of the problems with this particular aircraft carrier, maybe you've heard this story, was the new system they had put on board to help launch aircraft. Now, literally for the the entirety of my life almost... The United States Navy, the aircraft carriers, have used a propulsion system that has worked marvelously well based on steam. These are a catapult. They literally eject the plane down the runway so the jet lag of the power curve can be caught up to come off a short deck and be airborne. The USS Gerald Ford was equipped with a new and modern electronic electromagnetic system. And apparently it doesn't work. On this mega-billion-dollar aircraft carrier, the catapult system to launch the aircraft, that's what an aircraft carrier is for, is not working. Somebody in the military-industrial complex had a wonderful idea that the government funded to get built. They put it together, they researched it, and now it doesn't work. And when President Trump was talking to those that run that system down below, 
he asked what they thought of it. And the the men, they were a little bit hesitant, but they said, uh, sir, <laughs> the system doesn't work. And they said, you know, the old system worked wonderfully. And we could repair it literally with a, you know, with a, a torch and a hammer and be in business. This thing, when it fails, requires technicians, people with degrees, and literally scientists to analyze for days and hours on how to repair it. We cannot have a device that unreliable in a time of war. This is the mindset of our military at the top levels. This is the mindset of many of the generals and admirals and colonels that that wander around the Pentagon. The liaisons that work with companies like Raytheon, McDonnell Douglas, Martin Marietta, you name it, those that build items for, for war. And this has been going on for the majority of my lifetime. I said I had a sleepless night last night. And I woke up thinking, when did this all start? When did we get into this military-industrial complex that takes such an exorbitant amount of money to accomplish very little in the grand scheme of things? And where does it leave us today? Obviously, we really didn't have a military-industrial complex in the 1800s. We started developing one because of our sudden entry into World War I. And of course, our entry into the Second World War created a demand for building military apparatus and weaponry at a level unprecedented at that point in our nation's history. After the war, the fear of communism drove It drove the fear to build a very powerful defense. But Eisenhower observed during his two terms as president how that complex has control over many senators and congressmen and influence. They buy influence. And they build on American taxpayer dollars new and better weaponry to replace the old. It becomes a cash cow for many of these companies. And he warned that there needed to be some kind of control over this or we would have a price to pay. In my lifetime, I was born as we went to a stalemate with the nation of Korea. We came to a stalemate. That police action is still technically ongoing with a demilitarized zone. Then we were involved in what was called then Indochina. I remember seeing that on old maps. Indochina, French Indochina. We know it now as Vietnam. The French had given up. Part of the country wanted to be communist. The other part of the country, we've learned over the years, very corrupt. 
unable. And we ended up in a war that lasted for many, many years, all the way until April of 1975 when Saigon fell. And I think of all of those who lost their life in Korea, all those that lost their life in Vietnam. Coming up as a child, it had an influence on my life. I was within a year of age of being one that could have been drafted. While they still drew numbers, by the time I got there, they were no longer calling up any young men. How many times in the 1960s as I finished elementary school, junior high school, and entered high school were there protests about the Vietnam War? I can remember Kent State. I can remember the agony. I can remember the poor soldiers coming home being yelled at as baby killers. And I've talked to many a Vietnam vet, barely a year or two older than I am, that will tell you that their hands were tied. They was never designed to win that war. And how did it end? By the way, it's not really a war. It was never really a declared war. It was a police action, a peacekeeping force that took the lives of 50,000-plus young men. And how did it end? Did it end with a victory and a, and a, t- and a parade with the teletype, uh, you know, the ticker tape parade in New York City? No. No. It ended with helicopters taking out personnel off the roof of the United States Embassy in Saigon. One of these days, I'll share my Air Force story. But I can remember as a newlywed. Hadn't been married more than, what, eight months maybe? Nine months? watching on the television with my wife the fall of Saigon. It just happened. And it happened suddenly and swiftly, at least from most people's point of view. I'm sure many in the military knew that day was coming, and they were preparing for it and got us out. The last time the United States actually won legitimately a war, won a war, was 1945. VE Day, victory in Europe, and VJ Day, victory over Japan, talking between May and August, those two dates. That was the last time we had an actual victory with our armed forces of the United States. A declared war. I can remember in the early 1990s, early 1990s, the Gulf War. Remember we had Desert Shield that became Desert Storm? 
and how patriotic we all were, thinking we were doing the right thing. And we left the job somewhat unfinished, maybe, only to be taken back up 10 years later. And how many decades have we been involved in trying to be a nation builder where they don't want us to build their nation? They don't want us to inflict our will upon these people. These people resent us in many cases. They smile at us like they did in South Vietnam. But they'll also stab you in the back. So yes, I begin today's program really wondering about the future of my nation, the United States. I wonder what our credibility now is in the world, especially in the way that we are exiting Afghanistan. Now, I don't care what the folks at MSNBC or CNN have to say or the talking heads that are anti-this, anti-that. Their minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed up and too well set, full of themselves, former this, former that. I don't care what any of them have to say. I think the truth is very plain. There was a plan to get out, and somehow... The new administration being so anti-Trump, you know, this, this hatred of all things Trump has clouded the minds of many individuals in government. Well, he did it that way, so we can't do it that way. And I believe because of that, people are dead, and we may see in the days and weeks ahead, we may see one of the greatest and scariest hostage situations our nation has ever faced. I can remember 1978, November 4th, when the protesters that wanted to take over the country of Iran took our embassy and its personnel, over 50 of them, hostage. 444 days. 444 and 44 days. I can remember I was working at a radio station. I would get up to do my my morning program, and I'd stop by to get something to eat about, about 5 o'clock in the morning, pick up the newspaper, day 173, day 200 and whatever. And I can remember the failed attempt to release our hostages. And by the way, that that drives me to something I need to share. It was about 13 years ago. I was the pastor of a small church near Fort, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And in my congregation, I had a few retired Air Force brass, some majors, some colonels, lieutenant colonels. And in this congregation, I had this one guy. And he was a hard guy to to become friends with at first. But he and I developed a friendship. And one day, he asked me if I would come to 
Herbert Field for a special special day of recognition. And if I would be a part of this special recognition. See, this guy was the was the man that was tasked with the job by the Air Force of flying in the C-130 transports into Iran. And he talks, it haunts him, the failure of that mission, probably to this day. And one day he and I had a chance for a private conversation, and he just bared his soul to me, as he's done to many, about what went wrong. He said when the State Department and Pentagon dreamed up the idea, his biggest concern was, okay, we need to train with these Marines who may not be aware of the desert conditions. Now, just so you know, this this guy who retired as a colonel, this man flew behind, you know, into Iran in a Cessna aircraft multiple times to look for a suitable landing site. They knew that the Republican Guard or whatever they called it in 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 Iran hadn't quite figured out all the military stuff, so they were able to fly in, quote, under the radar, undetected, to look for a place. So he understood where that aircraft was going to land when they came in, and then how to get these helicopters out and running and off to Tehran to extract our hostages and get them out. But once again, there were too many chefs and, well, you know, too many cooks and not enough people to, it just didn't work. They had too many people trying to drive the bus, so to speak. And the decision was made at the State Department level and the White House, well, no, there's no need to train with the United States Marines. They, they, they'll figure out their part. The Air Force will figure out theirs. And over multiple protests that they needed to find a place to practice together that would have circumstances and ground conditions similar to what they're going to be facing when they get to Iran, that request was denied. If I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me right, the Marines practice somewhere out in the Pacific, nothing like a desert, to do their part. And then the fateful night came. And in came our forces. And in the nighttime, as they fired up the helicopters and all the dust came up in the air, a young, not that experienced Marine pilot plowed his, his helicopter into one of the C-130 transports. Mission had to be aborted. Lives were lost. Equipment had to be laid and destroyed on the ground and to get out trying to save their lives. All because somebody at the White House and somebody at the State Department tried to decide they knew more about military than the military, just like the guys that run the catapult on an aircraft carrier. 
Somebody at the Pentagon thought this new electronic computer-controlled device would be something better. And it turned out to be something unreliable and something that can render our ability to use an aircraft carrier into question. But some company made lots of money in designing, building, installing, and now trying to maintain these devices. Or in this case, the device, try to make it work someday. How many years will that set this back? Do you see the problem that that Dwight Eisenhower saw? Beware the military-industrial complex. They see the United States Treasury as their feeding trough. And you and I as taxpayers have to fill it up for them. I agree that any nation needs to be able to defend itself. I thoroughly understand that. I have no particular problem with that. And I believe that we should. But I'm looking now in my lifetime... I'm looking at the things we've done, the decisions that have been made, and those that have been the war hawks trying to keep us entangled across the globe in everybody else's affairs. And what has it gotten us after all of these years? The United States is despised by many nations. I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. This is just my, my gut reaction, because of all that we have done in this embarrassing disaster that will be Afghanistan, and like I say, I record this program a bit in advance, and by the time the weekend is over and some people hear it maybe on a Sunday, more things may have occurred that we don't know about right now as you and I are having this time together. There's a lot of nations around the world right now that have decided they probably can't trust us. You know, after the Second World War, Europe was very dependent upon the United States, our generosity in helping the rebuild. So was Japan. And Europe was concerned about the rising threat of the Soviet Union and their expansionism desires. They had already kept territory that they had gone across marching to Berlin in Poland and Czechoslovakia and so on. They didn't want to give it back. They made it part of their their Soviet Union, including half of the nation of Germany. East Germany and Berlin contained inside of East Germany with four quadrants, the British, the French, the American, and the Soviets. How did that work out for us? We put together the North American Treaty Organization with the United States being the biggest funder of this, to protect the interest of Europe, and then it expanded into other parts of the world. How many nations that have signed on to NATO can trust us any longer after the fiasco that just occurred and is occurring in the Middle East? 
with the catastrophic collapse in Afghanistan, these nations may decide, you know something? United States, you can't be trusted. It's already been stated in in Great Britain. It's been stated in Germany and other parts of the world. The United States is no longer good for their word. What's going to happen if Saudi Arabia and all these other nations that used to look up to the United States decide, you know, we're going to abandon the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, sometimes referred to as the petrodollar. Not that it matters to many in government. They want to get rid of, quote, carbon, uh, you know, the, the fossil fuel stuff. They want to put us in bankruptcy and dependency. Got some more to share about that shortly. We may be looking, and this is why I had a hard time sleeping last night. It's not just the losses that we have taken, the embarrassment. It is shown with a spotlight. The corruption at the highest levels of our government, like I've never seen in my life. I love my country. I want my nation to do the right thing. Unfortunately, with those in the executive branch and the majority of the legislative branch, we are not doing the right thing. As somebody said, when General Mark Milley of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is more concerned about white rage and critical race theory than getting our people out of Afghanistan over these past many months and is suddenly surprised that the Taliban can't be trusted and caught off guard, it's time for Americans to rise up and let our voices be heard that when it comes to our interventions around the world, none of which are panning out, by the way, since World War II, maybe it's time, before we take the the speck out of somebody else's eye, as the Bible teaches, maybe it's time we get the big motor, the log, out of our own. I didn't think I'd be having a political discussion like this today. But my heart is broken for families that have lost young children, their sons, their daughters, in these endless wars to make the wealthy even wealthier. I never thought I'd be saying it like this in my lifetime. But with what I'm seeing, with what has been revealed over the past couple of years, I can't be silent anymore. When I come back after this break, I want to totally change direction with you. And I want to share with you what I really had intended to share for pretty much the bulk of today's program. Something very personal to me, very personal in my life, and the life that I had after that point and where it brings me today. I think what I have to share in changing directions will be an encouragement to many and hopefully a blessing as well 
And you might learn something about your host you didn't know before. If you believe in our ministry, would you consider helping us pay for the airtime? Here we are, beginning of September almost. And we have some airtime bills to pay. And we always try to be ready for the next. If you can help us, why not consider supporting us? If you can, you can make a check payable to Ancient Word Radio. That's Ancient Word Radio. Our mailing address is 212121 Berkshire. That's spelled B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E. 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263. That is our secure box. Put on box or just put on number 263. They have no trouble figuring it out. 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263. We're in the city of Sky Valley, two words, Sky Valley, Georgia, Sky Valley, Georgia, and the zip code is 30, that's 30537. And we will be right back, and we will change directions, and I I hope you'll stay with me. I think you're going to be very much encouraged. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. Your sacred parchment coming up. Shalom Aleichem. This is the nice Jewish boy, Jonathan Kahn, your Jewish connection, bringing you the riches of your Jewish roots in Jesus. Now get your pen out as fast as you can so you don't miss out on receiving a special free gift you're going to get and love in a moment. Now, one of the most important parts of the Bible is invisible. (laughs) That's right. What is it? Well, it's the white space. You see, every Bible has ink, but it also has white space. The words are on white space. Not just now, but even from the beginning in ancient scrolls, same thing, same thing. You can't read the word without the white, without the background. And there's a mystery there. You see, the word of God doesn't exist in a void. It has to exist in your life. It's got to be put to a context. You can't read the Bible without that white background. So people can't see the Lord without it being real in your life, without the word coming into your life and being real. Your life is God's parchment. It's the sacred parchment. But the word without paper, well, it can't be read. And at the same time, your the paper without the word is blank. And so your life without God's word is blank. But when you put them together, you got something great there. Take the promises of God and put it into your life. Take the principle of the word, put it into your life. Take the admonition of God of the word and put it into your life. Apply it in your life. Apply the word, apply his love, apply it. And people will see it and it will shine. Because it's written that you are an epistle. Your life is the sacred parchment for God. It's to be a living Bible. Your life is not just your life. It's the sacred parchment that exists to bring forth the word and the glory of God. Want more? Ask for the invisible scriptures. Now the free gift for you. The mystery of the temple doors. You'll love it. And sapphires with the riches of your Jewish roots in Jesus. Special teachings, updates on Israel, world events and prophecy. And the secrets of strength and victory for every day of your life. How do you get this free? Easy. Just remember Jesus' real Hebrew name. Yeshua. And you dial it. That's it. Just dial 1-800-YESHUA-1. You will be blessed, my friend, but call now. That's 1-800-YESHUA-1. I invite you to join me in bringing salvation back to God's ancient nation, Israel, and all the unreached peoples on five continents with over a billion people. Just call 1-800-YESHUA-1, and you can do great things in the Great Commission. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A-1. Now, how do you write me? Well, 
The address is the Nice Jewish Boy Box 1111 Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey, 07644. It's a Nice Jewish Boy, 1111 Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey, 07644. Till next time, this is Jonathan Kahn saying, put that word of God into your life. Apply it today in the name of Messiah, Hadavar, the word of God. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. Welcome you back to part two of our program, Truth to Ponder. Kind of a different way to come back to the program with a song from 1975. That song is called Only Yesterday. I want to change gears, like I said just a few moments ago. I want to take you back 46 years. It was a weekend just like this one almost, this time of the year. Last weekend last weekend in the month of August. And a young guy, that's me by the way, had landed in a small town in Northeast Georgia. Long story that I'll tell you some other day. But I'm a young guy, got some college and tech school behind me, and I'm in a new place, a new town I'd never been to before in my life. I had actually arrived in that little community in March of 1975. And that's why I remember the fall of Saigon so well, because I was just starting out as a new radio announcer. And I was beginning my career working full-time at a little radio station in a small town called Tacoa, Georgia. Not far off Interstate 85, about two hours or less above Atlanta, about an hour or so south of Greenville, South Carolina. And I got to this small town in March, and I can remember the first day I was there. I had decided, long story, to come south and stay south. And for me, I guess I had endured one too many upstate New York winters. You know, you can come up with your own reason, but... There were a lot of things going on in my family at the time. Uh, And it just seemed like the right choice to start my life afresh in a new place. And and I I always had liked the South. I had family not far away in South Carolina. So over the years, I had been in that region. And I always did like it. The weather didn't have the, uh, didn't need a snow shovel very often, rarely, if any. Many years, you didn't need it at all. And so this young guy ends up in this small town. And I had applied for a job in a community called Clemson, South Carolina. You've probably heard of that from Clemson University. Little AM radio station. One of our family members knew of the owner. And it set up an appointment where I could go visit him. And I drove over to to Clemson, South Carolina, to meet a guy that ended up becoming a long-term friend of mine for many, many years. His name was Matt Phillips. And I got there, and he said, I wish I had an opening, but I don't, but I know somebody that does. 
He just called me this morning, about, you know, not even an hour ago, wanting to know if I knew of anybody looking for an announcing job that was any good. And he said, after talking to you, I think you'd fit right in. Let me let me make a call for you. So he made, and remember, this is 1975, so he was kind enough to make a long-distance call on my behalf, and he called the radio station. It was less than an hour's drive south of Clemson on a Highway 123. And yes, the job was still open, and yes, if I could come down right away, uh, he would like to meet with me. Now, this was about 10 o'clock in the morning, so I got in my car and I drove for the first time to the little town of Toccoa, Georgia. And I really didn't know where I was at, never had been there before, but I found the radio station, got there a little after 11, and I met the owner and saw the facility. It was an AM-FM radio station. And we talked for a while, and the owner said, uh, have you had any lunch yet? I said, no. He said, well, why don't you go find something to eat? He explained how to find where the new McDonald's was and a couple of other things on the main highway, on the main highway coming into town. And also how to find downtown. He said, there are a couple little restaurants there as well that you may want to try out. And so I got in my car. Like I say, I didn't know anything about this community. And so I started driving, and I got to the traffic light, and I made a right turn, ended up in, for the first time, in downtown Toccoa, Georgia. And I'm looking around, trying to find a place to eat, and I saw there was a, a drugstore with a luncheonette counter, so I went in there. I wasn't all that hungry, so I just got something to eat, tried to kill the hour, because he asked if I would come back. And so took my time, had a light lunch, and I checked out. Now, the way it worked back in those days, they gave you at the little luncheonette counter, you didn't pay there, they gave you a little ticket and you took it to the register right by the front door. And there was this young gal who checked me out. And I, she, she just was passing time and said, oh, you must be new around here, I've never seen you before. And I said, I'm here applying for a job. And I told her where and she wished me the best of luck. And she said, if you get it, let me know. Okay. So I drove back to the radio station, and I found it. Almost forgot how to get there, but I found it and got there, and the guy said, well, I was talking it over, and uh, I'd like to give you a try. Would you, can you hang around for a while today and maybe uh, see how you do? And we have an opening in the afternoon, 2 to 6 on the air on our FM. Uh, we have a guy that's been with us for a long time who's leaving uh, to start his own business. And uh, we need a new announcer. And he said, I think you'll do. And so at 2 o'clock that afternoon, I went on the air for the first time. I was hired and went on the air the same day. And at 6 o'clock, I headed back to where I was staying in South Carolina. I had already made a phone call to say I would be late. Don't worry about me. And I went to work the next day. I mean, I started that very day. It was either a Monday or a Tuesday when I started, and I was on the payroll. I'm filling out paperwork while I'm playing records. And I found a place several months later to, to live there. But that second day in Tacoa, I decided to have, because I came in in the morning to do some stuff that they needed done, 
went to lunch before I went on the air and I met that gal again. And I said, and she said, oh, I, I say, you're back. How did it go? I said, I started yesterday and I'm on the air and I told her when. And she was kind of cute and I, I just was kind of fascinated with this Southern girl. And so I went ahead and kept going to that drugstore to have my lunch. And the food was actually quite good. To make a long story short, we fell in love and we married. Well, there was a lot of things about that. She she was about 12 and a half years my senior, though she never looked it. And I married a ready-made family in 1975. Only a few people in my family knew that we were going to elope, and that's what we did. On the Friday, on Friday before the weekend started, I got most of my stuff out of my my apartment. It was a furnished apartment, so there wasn't all that much. And I kept only the things I was going to need for Saturday and the wedding, my suit and a little change of clothes and everything ready to go. And then I took care of getting my car serviced on Saturday, worked a half a day at the radio station to take some extra time off. And then Saturday afternoon, I had the last of my stuff in the trunk of my car, and I drove over to the house where my bride was living, and I picked her up, and we went off to a pastor's house, a Lutheran pastor uh, that I had come to know. And in front of his fireplace, on that last Saturday night in the month of August, we were married. And we got in my car and off to, off we went, not even knowing where we we're going to be heading. And thus began a very different life for me overnight. Everything about my career and goals changed quite a bit. If you had asked me two years before then, what is your goal in life? What do you want to do? Where do you think you're going to be in, in three, four, or five years? When I was finishing high school a few years before, my goal then was I'm going to be a well-known disc jockey on some big radio station in like a Chicago or a Cleveland or a Rochester or a Boston, maybe even New York or Chicago. That was my goal. I was going to play those top 40 hits like you just heard, The Carpenters, Only Yesterday, and other songs of that era. That was my goal. And it was an innocent time. I'd worked in some nice radio stations, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being on the air. Radio back then was a totally different thing than today. You didn't have as many corporate owners because corporations could only own a few radio stations. So you had a lot of smaller operators that owned one radio station, maybe two or three in different communities. And so we were more community-minded. And my goal was to work my way up that food chain, so to speak, and become that great radio announcer. That was my goal. And I was so fixated on it, I didn't really, you know, in the early days, every some opportunities that I actually could have had, I missed because I had these, like, blinders on. I can't see to the left or right. I had this single-minded goal. And now I'm in 
Toccoa, Georgia, figuring, okay, this is kind of a step backward. This is definitely not Cleveland, Ohio. This is definitely not Chicago. This is definitely not a big city. I'm in a smaller town than I've ever been in, next to the one that I lived in in upstate New York. I have made a big step backward. And I figured from there, though, I could, you know, get a little more experience, a little more stable, add to the resume. And I did. And I even had the opportunity. We went to Atlanta, and I got into a radio station there. And, and every everything that I did opened up another door. And over the years, in those first years, some of my goals began to change. And they, and they do as you begin to mature and you start getting into life and taking on responsibility. Some of the goals you may or may have had, sometimes, well, they, they become a little different. Suddenly, security became important. I'm raising a family. I've got two people dependent on me besides my wife and, and the paycheck that I bring in to put food on the table, to keep the electricity turned on, to pay the mortgage payment. These were things that prior to that, I didn't worry about too much. And a lot of young guys back, you know, 46 years ago, 50 years ago, you, if you're single, you just kind of make do. You didn't worry about a fancy place to live or anything like that. You were just busy trying to get your life started. And I kind of jumped a little ahead in, in the way I got married. That's just the way it was. And, and by the time I got to the like 1977, 78, Atlanta had been fun, but crowded. And I took a job at a, another radio station, this one in South Carolina, where you could essentially be the big fish in a smaller pond and have some security. And I went to work for a radio station doing mornings, and, and I was involved in every aspect. It was one of the most fun times of my life. I really did have a great time. But I, I realized that as much as it's a lot of fun to work in a radio station like the one I was at, it was top 40. It was a lot of fun. Everybody knew who you were. There was one problem with it. Where are things going to be in four or five years? What are the radio station sells? What if the owner decides to retire or something like that? I mean, then you have to go moving, and, and, and it, it got to the point that I wasn't sure if I wanted to go that route. Maybe being on the air had been fun for almost mm, 10 years at that point. Almost the first decade started in 1971. You know, that's 50 years ago. And here we are, you know, halfway into the into nineteen. We're we're into this. We're in the mid seventies, and 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 I loved what I did. But one day I started thinking, you know, I don't need to be a radio announcer. And and this voice inside of me said, it's time to you know put it just like Saint Paul says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and, you know, I had the dreams. You know, how many how many young kids, I want to be a fireman, or I want to be this, that, or the other, or an astronaut. That's what we heard back in my day. But as you grow up and you begin to learn the things you're good at doing, and you become confident in who you are, you start making some more rational decisions. And that's pretty much what happened to me. And so by the time... We had our fifth anniversary. 
I had made the transition from being on the radio, on the air, the guy that was behind the microphone, and I moved behind the scenes to engineering. And it was more secure. There was some stress when you have to go get called out at 2 o'clock in the morning because there's something wrong. Didn't happen that often. But there was stability And you recognize that formats come and go. Radio announcers come and go, but the engineers are the ones that have the keys. (laughs) And so they have a, a more secure job. Funny thing is, in God's economy, there was a purpose for all of it. The on air experience was needed. It's been a part of who I am on and off since 1971 it's who i it's part of who i really am on the air the engineering it opened doors for places i never would have dreamed three four or five years earlier i would be doing i went to work for a transmitter manufacturer then i went to work for a christian college where god opened up the doors to build not one radio station but many and a satellite network, and the impact I'll never know till eternity comes. How many people were blessed? How many people's lives were changed because of that particular work in the 1980s and into the 1990s? And it was because I was at the right place that God wanted me to be in the 1990s. A door opened that I never thought would open for me. I'd felt a call in my life as a youngster, but it just never, it just never could come to fruition. I had grandparents that really prayed that I would become some kind of a, a pastor. They thought I should be a preacher. They really thought that this was who I should be. And of course, when you're, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, I want to be a disc jockey. I want to be the guy on the radio. I wasn't ready for such an enormous call on my life. But the time had come, life had become vastly more stable for me and my wife and our family, where I could make that transition, which may have not been something that could have been done 10 years before, even 20 years before coming out of high school and and starting my, my secondary education. I wasn't ready. But the door did open, and in 1996, I was ordained to the ministry. That was January 6th of that year, the beginning of the year. And it didn't change my life dramatically at that point. I started helping out in churches and missions, but I maintained the job that I had until the time came that it was time to take on a greater responsibility in ministry. And I answered a call to go to a city in Florida. And my wife, who was originally from Georgia, was ready at that point, too. If I had asked her to go live permanently in Florida, that was not going to happen. But through it all, at the right timing, in God's timing, we got to Florida. And the fact that I had this background as a broadcast engineer, I could be, as St. Paul calls it, a tent maker like he was. I was able to deal with a mission church, and I had enough work coming in to keep ourselves afloat. And over the years, a church grew from that ministry. 
So I think back on a weekend like this. Last weekend in August, I always think about it. The day that I arrived with a jacket that was a little bit too small for me. Gray pants, navy blue jacket, red tie. Standing next to this five foot three girl from Tacoa, Georgia, taking on the responsibility of a family. What a journey life has been. And that journey that my wife and I had lasted for over 29 years until God called her home. She had been diagnosed with cancer and I lost her two years later in 2004. It was a number of years that I will tell you, for lack of a better term, lost, wasted, painful. But God in his time restored me, my ministry, and my life, the one that I have today. There is hope even in our most difficult times. Our nation, the United States, we're facing some really tough times. And Monday, we'll get back to the topics that we have to deal with in this very changing and, and very volatile world. There are powers out there that I call satanic because that's rough. That's a, really what they actually are. St. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I recognize that at this point in my life, I'm, I'm mostly retired but I still do some ministry. What that ministry is going to be in the days, weeks, and months ahead, I really don't know. I trust God for that. I know that this radio show, and today has been a very different one than what we normally do on this program, and I, I, I want to thank you if you stayed with me all this time as I shared from my heart to you. Would you encourage me today as I try to encourage you we could use your support as we go into this new month as we prepare to pay some additional airtime bills. I'll be sharing some exciting stuff next week. There's a lot of things on in the background. I don't have everything in front of me, but it'll be next week. If you can help us, you can mail a check made out to Ancient Word Radio. That's Ancient Word Radio. Or you can write Truth to Ponder, but the check, Ancient Word Radio. And our address is 21 Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263, number 263. And we're located in Sky Valley. That's two words, Sky Valley, Georgia, 30537. Until Monday, may God bless you. This has been Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. To find out more, visit our website, Truth, the number two, and the word ponder.com. That's truth, the number two, ponder.com. Truth to ponder, shining the light of truth in a darkening world.